0: It's just amazing what it said there's a guide for spouses. So you think he's not that into you. It may be low T. And then it sort of goes through all the way that, all the ways that the woman may be thinking that the relationship isn't going well, but in fact she should be suspicious that it's about low testosterone level.
1: That was Lisa Schwartz talking about a disease awareness campaign about low testosterone and we'll be hearing more about that in a bit. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and this week I've been lucky enough to be in Copenhagen at the annual Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference. The conference is a forum where researchers and practitioners can present examples they've seen of overdiagnosis. And there we heard about the various ways which disease definitions are being subtly widened and diagnostic thresholds lowered. One of the people talking at the conference was Alan Francis. He's a retired psychiatrist and a one-time chair of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, as it's more commonly known. At Preventing of Diagnosis, he talked about the importance of good, accurate diagnoses of a mental health disorder. I caught up with him to find out a little bit more about how DSM criteria are actually created. You chaired the DSM-IV, um, and you obviously were a psychiatrist before that. So it seems like you were sort of, I don't know, fully bought into the system. Bye. Even when you chaired? Sure. So, uh, so yeah, how did you end up chairing? What was your sort of career up to that point? And, and what were your, you know, why did you try, choose to do that? The reason it was wrong was I, I, I was worried about
2: overdiagnosis and overtreatment because in my residency I was taught to overdiagnose and overtreat. We were calling everyone schizophrenic. We were keeping people in the hospital for a year or more. And um, as time went on, I became worried about that, realized that many of the people that we were giving very severe labels to got better and that we were over-diagnosing. And there was a study in the early 70s that proved that British psychiatrists, seeing the very same videotape, were likely to give a diagnosis of mood disorder while American psychiatrists, the people teaching me, would give a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And then I, I began running an outpatient department, and I realized that lots of patients were getting too much treatment in the outpatient department. And in 1982, I wrote a paper on no treatment as the treatment of choice. Um, But I also accidentally got involved in working on DSM 3 and was one of the people central in DSM 3R. And then they were, the American Psychiatric Association, I think, was worried about the fact that psychiatric diagnosis was uh, exploding. And they wanted someone to chair dsm 4 who would, was skeptical about the process and would do his best to contain it. And that's what we tried to do, not very successfully. Uh, we established very high empirical thresholds for making changes. So if you let experts in the room decide a diagnosis, they will always uniformly, I've worked with thousands of experts, they will always expand They will always have their pet diagnosis. They'll worry about the patient they missed. And they won't worry at all about the patients who are mislabeled. They work in research clinics that are very different than clinical practice with highly selected patients, lots of time for evaluation. And they make suggestions. Experts almost always make suggestions that won't work in average clinical practice, especially in primary care. So we established high thresholds for change. There had to be literature review where the data jumped off the graph, grabbed you by the throat and says, you have to make this change. We did data reanalysis analyses, field trials, we worked very hard to restrict the experts' diagnostic enthusiasm. And still, um, years later, some of the um, diagnoses in dsm four were misused to radically increase the rates of psychiatric disorder. If anything can be misused in any medical guideline, especially of this
1: commercial drug company interest, it will be misused. Mm. in the room, uh, actually, that you know what's going on, what are the kind of dynamics, what the chat. In the, in the room for
2: DSM-3 and 3R, you had a bunch of experts who would be screaming at each other in the morning. Uh, Bob Spitzer, who was the head of the effort then, would be typing on his computer. Um, he would come up with a set of criteria and feed a very big lunch. And by the end of the uh, lunch, most of the people were calmed down, tired, sleepy, and the set of criteria that he formulated out of this massive inchoate discussion uh, would be the tentative criteria, and then whoever spoke to them last might influence it and tweak it. It was a very arbitrary, expert-driven, um, almost data-free effort. By the time we did dsm there lots more data had accumulated, but also I hated meetings like that. And I also was junior enough to many of the experts in the field that I knew if they got into arguments, it would be hard to, sh- to shut them up. And I didn't want changes. I basically wanted a conservative system. So we developed this very um, rigid. Um, requirement for high threshold uh, data production to make any changes, and that shut up all the discussions, mm. because there usually was not data that would be um, informative enough to make to compel a change. Most discussions um, that are that say they're evidence based are usually much more arbitrary and interpretive than meets the eye because usually the evidence doesn't speak with one voice, and it doesn't shout. Mm. Now in terms of the, the decisions we made that resulted in troubles, despite all our efforts not to make decisions that would result in troubles, the, the most prominent were um, in uh, bipolar disorder, in autism, and in attention deficit disorder. And each time the decision we made seemed to make sense and we did field trials to show that it would make sense. And each time, once it got out into the wild, the real world, uh, there were massive distortions of what we had intended. Mm. Uh, I can tell you each of the three if you have time. But. Um, yes, yes, please Okay, do. with bipolar disorder, we added a category called bipolar 2 for people who would have severe depressions, but mild hypomanic attacks, not the full-blown mania great reasons for doing it and extensive research literature supporting the fact that these people had family histories like bipolar patients, that they were subject to uh, rapid cycling and irritability if they were given antidepressants without considering the bipolar risks. But three years after the DSM came out, the atypical antipsychotics got an indication for bipolar disorder. And they began advertising bipolar disorder in such a powerful way that pretty soon there was a tremendous shift. And half the patients who had previously been diagnosed as unipolar suddenly were diagnosed as bipolar on very flimsy grounds. The result was terrible side effects from the antipsychotics in patients who could have avoided them. We were trying to protect people from the antidepressants. And because of the change, we didn't anticipate the appearance of the antipsychotics, we subjected many. people, or the world had many people, to antipsychotics they didn't need. We added a category of Asperger's disorder Mm -hmm. because child psychiatrists were very insistent that there were many people, three times as many people, had mild symptoms of autism as had the severe symptoms that they needed a more specific diagnosis for them. We did a field trial and, and it turned out that it would increase the rate of autism by three times in our field trial. But once it got into the wild, parents started suing schools for extra services in the school system. Psychologists became very enamored of the criteria for Asperger's and the rate jumped 40 times. We anticipated in our careful field trials under controlled conditions a three time increase. It became a 40 time increase. Uh, Attention deficit disorder, we widened the criteria just a bit because there were girls who had inattentiveness, who were space cadets, mm-hmm. who weren't captured in the previous, It's a tiny change. But because new um, stimulant drugs that were very expensive came on the market, uh, that gave the motive and the means for the drug companies to start advertising ADHD like crazy. And rates of ADHD increased by four or fivefold in the U.S. and doubled, tripled most of the rest of the world. So tiny changes that you think you've sort of studied carefully and you've seen all the pitfalls very hard or impossible to anticipate the harmful unintended consequences once it becomes outside your control to um, determine how the changes are used. And if anything can be misused, you can make the bet, especially if there's commercial gain or profit, it will be misused.
1: Um we're here to talk about diagnosis and even just a diagnosis though. I have friends who've had adult diagnoses of of mild Asperger's and of ADHD and have found that really useful, not necessarily in a requiring treatment, medication, but just in a kind of explaining why the world is a bit harder for them and, you know, negotiating with other people, you know, why they might need some, some extra help. So, you know, there's a, there seems like there's a balance there that, that's incredibly hard to do. And, and within a diagnostic kind of, or within something like DSM, which which has the the potential to, to, to roll out, um, that's that's incredibly hard. So when you were putting these together um, with the best intentions, were you aware of those potential pitfalls as well? Was that something that you were cognizant of? Yeah, you know, the power to, to label
2: is the power to help with power to destroy, mm. and in this conference we just saw a woman who was um, obviously not in need of uh, many years of psychiatric care and the diagnosis of schizophrenia, who, whose life was materially hampered by a, a wrong label. Mm. An accurate psychiatric label given in a timely and empathic way is, is a joy forever. The, the person feels understood. There's an empathy that comes with an accurate diagnosis. I'm not alone. The, the problems I have are understandable. I'm not uniquely damned. And there's the literature that tells me what, what we can do to help. I can negotiate with my doctor what's what's useful. And it can be the beginning of a much happier life. An inaccurate diagnosis, and most diagnoses these days are inaccurate, can be um, haunting Uh, irrevocable, uh, stigmatizing blot on a person's life. And most diagnoses now are given by general practitioners in just about seven minutes because they have to have a diagnosis to get paid in the United States. Most of them are inaccurate. Most could be avoided with more time. If doctors spend more time with patients, more time in each session and more sessions over the course of a month or two, most diagnoses evaporate because most people come in on the worst day of their life and get better. So there's um, a value to a a good diagnosis, there's a great harm to an inaccurate diagnosis, and it depends, I think, largely on how much time people have to observe before jumping in. It's a very crucial moment in a person's life. And you wouldn't go out and buy a car or a house based on a seven-minute decision. It's a very crucial person moment in a person's life, it needs to be done with great care.
1: Mm. One thing you've said is that you think that these diagnostic criteria should be Uh, not just done by um, experts sitting in a room, but should be done in negotiation with with patients and GPs and and wider society. How do you think that would practically work? It's not hard.
2: Um, At this meeting, there have been um, numerous discussions amongst the general practitioners, the family doctors, on how they can do their own guidelines that would incorporate suggestions from the experts, you can't leave them out because they know stuff, but would not give the experts the final call. And I think you need to have a public health perspective, a health economics perspective, a forensic perspective. Um, you, you need the perspective of the consumers. The eventual guideline will incorporate some of the best expert knowledge, but we'll try to adapt it to the wider world. Experts alone, any guideline done by a professional society is a guild document. Mm. There will be enormous financial conflicts of interest and even worse, intellectual conflicts of interest that you always want to expand your pet. And the fact that the American Cardiology Association was able to expand the number of hypertensive patients in China by about 250 million people just by changing a tiny little point of, um, of where you're going to diagnose hypertension shows the power that's in the diagnostic guidelines and the, the danger that comes in letting experts decide where the line should be.
1: Mm. Um, the other thing that GPs were talking about here was the the interface between general practice and sort of social care and the ability to access things in wider society. And um, I think the story that we heard uh, from the patient that you mentioned as well sort of helped explain how um, you know, social factors were a massive influence on 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 her illness and, and the trajectory of it. So you know, it's that sort of the, the, that diagnostic cutoff between mental illness and a sort of societal disadvantage. Um, you know, when it comes to sort of creating some diagnostic criteria, for you know, how does how does yeah. that get? Okay. There has to be a biopsychosocial model. Eighty um,
2: percent of all health outcomes, not just psychiatry, are, are related to social factors, not the treatment. And the inequality, the poverty, the lack of access to treatment um, in the Americas in America, we have twelve percent of our people uncovered at all, so it will be eighteen percent. I think it's it, it's crucially important that we we see the patient's presenting problem in the larger context. The U.S. spends more than twice as much as Britain on each patient for medical care, and we have terrible outcomes. And the UK spends about four thousand. We spend ten thousand. Has much better outcomes. The amongst the best in the world. Why? European countries spend much more on the social safety net. If you take the total number of dollars spent, the US spends about as much as Europe. And if you add up medical treatment and social safety net, but we waste at least. third maybe a half of the money we're spending on excess medical treatment we spend far too little on social factors that would provide a safety net that would reduce both psychiatric and medical morbidity Mm. so any evaluation of a patient has to take into account the social factors and any evaluation of the performance of a health system has to take into account whether there's a disproportionate amount of money being spent on the healthcare side and and a real lack and neglect of the social safety net
1: Mm. and if we take America as the the specific sort of thing here um, Horrible example uh, yeah well yes I indeed but I was going to say the the way that acute um, people with acute psychiatric needs are, are managed in, in America seems particularly they're not managed strange and and you were talking about the number of people who end up in in custody because of that
2: if you privatize medical care you get much worse medical care and great profits for the people who deliver it, and it's especially true of the severely ill that you cannot have a good privatized system for treating people with severe psychiatric disorder. It's a society's public responsibility to provide adequate acute psychiatric care, enough beds, and even more important, community services and a decent place to live. And as rents go up around the world, the first people who are disenfranchised are the ones who are most vulnerable psychiatrically. They wind up in the street. They wind up in prison. Much less in the UK than the US, but
1: increasing. That was Alan Francis, psychiatrist and former chair of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of Mental Disorders. Also presenting at Overdiagnosis this week were friends of the podcast and frequent BMJ contributors Lisa Schwartz and Steve Voloshin. They've been looking at disease awareness campaigns. Those are the adverts that you see on buses and magazines on TV, making the public aware of a disease they may not know much about. Now, obviously that work can be very important. For example, those early campaigns to tell people about HIV, AIDS, or perhaps the symptoms of a stroke. But Steve and Lisa have also noticed that these campaigns can be less positive. Together they run the Centre for Medicine and Media at the Dartmouth Institute and here they talk to Helen MacDonald, Head of Education at the BMJ.
3: On Monday you gave a great talk um, to the auditorium about disease awareness campaigns. Um, can you tell us uh, a bit about what a disease awareness campaign is and, and how they're kind of um, related to overdiagnosis. Related to overdiagnosis. Sure.
4: So the, <clears throat> the idea is it's not like traditional advertising of a, of a particular drug or a product, but it's advertising a disease, a condition. And it has the same effect because, in the way that it, it informs people about symptoms that they may not have realized. Um, or disease or, um, or, have, or, or can be treated in a particular way, um, it introduces the idea, but it's less crass than advertising. Um, it also, at least in the United States, it, it lets the companies get around certain rules about disclosing side effects and, mm-hmm. and harms, because if they don't name the drug, um, then they don't have to talk about the, the side effect profile or the mm-hmm. special warnings. So it's a clever way to reach out. Now it can be good and it can be bad. I mean, it can destigmatize diseases that people didn't really talk about or know about. For example, early on in AIDS and there are other uh, examples. Um, but the problem is that um, it can easily be subverted and turn what is meant to be education into into. So marketing. what you
3: mentioned that there were some characteristics of of how these campaigns work. Can you tell us what they are?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's a basic script. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a basic script that they all follow, and they're they, forced to they point out that the, this condition is really common, but you may not have heard about it, so it's underdiagnosed and underappreciated, um, and it's serious because it may be the beginning of some horrible, you know, the train that's taking you to someplace terrible, um, and then that then they offer so they make you feel they they undermine your sense of to make you feel vulnerable and then they say but there's something you can do and that points to the thing that they're selling. Almost invariably they don't just tell you to see a doctor, they provide a, um, a script for you to use, questions to ask, you know, to make sure that if your doctor isn't that smart they know that what they're supposed to do give them this particular drug.
3: And you talked about a couple of examples in your, in your presentation, so can you just paint a picture of how this actually happens.
0: Sure. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing I wanted to point out, it's not always pharmaceutical companies who are doing mm. this. So governments do it and public health agencies. And so one of the campaigns that we talked about was pre-diabetes, and this, which is a big campaign in the United States run by the Centers for Disease Control. Um, to, But in this case, the problem is, is that what we're trying to do is to get people to take a test and then um, know whether their blood sugar is in this borderline range, and um, whether that, um, and so it's really testing them for risk factor for another risk factor, and really we could just be telling people exercise more, eat better, lose weight, um, without giving them a label. And so I think that's one of the ways that we help people to convince people that they're sick when they're really um, not. Um, So in terms of the pharmaceutical um, campaigns we talked about in the U.S., um, there's a new one called Check Your Sweat um so have real, you this is completely so true. so it's um which actually has a picture of a bunch of like teenagers and young adults who are embarrassed about their sweat stains mm. and they're saying do you ever feel embarrassed by how much you sweat um have you had to change your clothing after you sweat a lot um and it has a quiz and it's um, you know, again, using the standard script, um, this is a really common problem. It can really bother people, and maybe you're really sick. You thought you were normal, but maybe you're really sick. And
4: um, and it tells you, no matter how you answer the quiz questions, even if you say no to them, if you're, if you're ever bothered by your sweating,
0: you should still go see a dermatologist. Right, and I, I think we think this campaign crosses the line because you're targeting um you know, teenagers who are already incredibly Mm self-conscious about their body, who have lots of hormones going on, and, you know, may have anxiety, you know, social anxiety, and, um, you know, that gray zone between normal and abnormal, and then to convince you that that's an illness and you need to take Cubrexa, which is the drug that's just been approved.
4: Um, And And because it's an awareness campaign, they don't have to disclose the side effects of the drug, which are... um, that you're, First of all, you're, you, if, if you take it when it's hot out, you're, you're not supposed to take it if it's hot outside because if you don't sweat, you can get heat stroke. Because it's an <laughs>
0: anticholinergic drug. So sort of, of ironic,
4: <laughs> ironic. And then a lot of people develop a little severe dry mouth or dry eyes, which is another...
0: Which is the leading to the other <laughs> campaign. Which is, so, so if you use one of these drugs, then that gives you the next condition, which mm. is dry eyes. And again, they're saying... Um, you know have your eyes felt dry you know maybe your contacts are bothering you um, you know ex- you know are you watching the computer screen too much um, and that's not just a symptom but it's now a disease and a disease that has serious consequences and so um, we talked about how you know the biggest problem is when the pharmaceutical industry defines what constitutes for the disease and in 2007 the um, 17 drug companies got together and held a workshop and created these vague criteria for um, what constitutes dry eye disease and it's been incredibly successful in the u.s and the drug that's linked to this for stasis has had two billion dollars in sales in the last couple of years
4: even though the evidence for its effectiveness is really, really limited i mean we've published a paper reviewing um the, the, the um, Looking through the FDA documents describing the basis of approval, and um, it's minimally, if at all, effective. But it has some important
0: well. In fact, fa- well, in fact, um, Europe thought it was completely ineffective, and offered the EMA offered a negative opinion, and it's not approved in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, um, because the regulators thought there were essentially three negative clinical trials. Mm.
3: So if you were um, a doctor or a member of the public, how would you be able to distinguish good campaigns from bad campaigns?
4: One thing, well, just one thing is um, that I think if the, the, one of the big problems is they often, the bad ones, use excessive fear. Um, and so they, they exaggerate the, the, the number of people at risk. Um, and they also exaggerate the, the dangers of the condition, and then they also exaggerate the benefits of the interventions. So I think if they are if they can be transparent and, and, and reasonable about those things, that, that would be a big step in making these things Well, better. but
0: I think the most important thing is to focus on the right problems, right? If we focus on people who are having heart attacks, knowing when to seek emergency help, right, that's an important problem, there's um, a clear solution, then that's a campaign. If you did it the right way and didn't make people feel really scared, you could be Doing um, a public service, and so I think it's also what you're promoting in the disease awareness campaign. If you're promoting something which is trying to medicalize unpleasant, ordinary experience, or just a borderline risk factor, that's when I think you're more at risk of a disease awareness campaign creating overdiagnosis and overtreatment and unnecessary fear. Do the campaigns work to promote um, a certain line of treatment or or a drug? Yes. Well, the selling of the Fountain of Youth was very successful. And um, the selling of what was called low tea. So um, are you sleepy after meals? Are you, is your athletic performance not what it used to be? Um, take testosterone. And in the US, it became a $2 billion a year industry, but there were ads in Canada. Has he lost that loving feeling? Um, we And we don't know exactly what the campaigns have been in Europe, but the rates of testosterone prescribing have gone up in the UK, um, Canada, and Asia. Asia um, not of the same magnitude as the US, but um, definitely increased over the same period of so time. So this is a campaign
3: for men um, to take testosterone to improve this, the kind of symptoms that you've... Yes, mentioned. and it's
4: not just men, it also targets women. It says, is your man, you know, well, and the, the guide they, they, they
0: have this treatment guide, which we could send you. I mean, we wrote an article about this in, a while ago, but um, the, it's just amazing what it said. There's a guide for spouses. So you think he's not that into you, it may be low T. And then it sort of goes through all the way that all the ways that the woman yeah. may be thinking that the relationship isn't going well, but in fact she should be suspicious that it's about low testosterone levels. And it's the script. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Actually, they,
4: because the companies know that men are more reluctant to bring things up to the mm. doctor, so this is how to get your man to to get his low T his prescription. That just one of the in terms of effectiveness. I mean, there is
0: some evidence. So not there, well, not in younger men. No, no. I'm, I'm yeah. talking
4: about the, the, whether these campaigns are effective. Oh, there camp- is some oh. evidence that um, there are some observational studies, you know, showing that um, the, the existence of these campaigns is associated with an increase in people going for to, to visit the doctor or for, for prescriptions. And there's actually a randomized trial that was done using standardized patients, very clever trial. And the, the standardized patients who were randomized to say to their doctor, you know, I saw this ad about depression. They don't name a drug. They just said about this depression on, on TV the other day. And, what, what, you know, I wonder if I have depression. Those patients were more likely to get a prescription for um, an antide- antidepressant drug, um, both whether they in, whether they're pretending to have major depression or if they were pretending to have an adjustment disorder, so both appropriate and inappropriate use. So it, it they really it does seem that they do have an, having a an real effect.
3: And is there any regulation of uh, disease campaigns?
4: There is no
0: regulation of this, in fact. I mean,
4: nobody is really watching. If you don't name the drug in the United States, then it it falls in this regulatory black hole. FDA doesn't do anything. Um, The Federal Trade Commission can do something, but they they have never done it. They would
0: never do it unless FDA complained to them. And in fact, low testosterone, FDA got a number of complaints about the disease awareness campaign. And what FDA said, oh, we don't regulate that. We can't do anything about it. Um, and, but FTC wouldn't go on record to say whether, in fact, FDA had ever come to them. But no matter what, they've never investigated and didn't investigate for low T. There were a series of lawsuits um, about low T. So that's
4: one of the things we've been trying but not very successfully is to try to get FDA and FTC to hold uh, sort of a public meeting to sort of talk about this and get it out in the open. There needs to be better um, regulation because there is a real potential for harm.
0: And FDA has done research, which is really interesting that their social scientists have done research showing how this disease information distorts people's perceptions about the drug, that it makes people think that the drugs are approved to treat all the problems of the disease, when in fact it's not. And so it really contributes not just to getting people interested in being treated, but believing that the drugs are much more effective than they are.
1: That was Steve Volishan and Lisa Schwartz directors for the Centre for Medicine and Media at the Dartmouth Institute talking about disease awareness campaigns. That's it for this podcast but we'll be back next week with more from preventing overdiagnosis. We'll find out about dynamic equilibrium in cancer and also the events that encourage some of the leaders in the field to take up arms You'll find that podcast and all of our others on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. As always, rate and review us. It helps other people to find us too. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.